0: If you'd like to turn to Second or First Peter chapter four, we're in First Peter chapter four again this morning. So, if you'd like to turn, and we'll read together. I'm going to start in verse one, even though this morning's passage is seven through eleven. I'm going to start in one and read through till eleven, because really it is all really meant to go together. First Peter chapter four, starting at verse once, verse one. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not want to join with them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel is preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self controlled, and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks the oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So let's pray together and ask God to bless our time. Father, we acknowledge to You again that we are a needy people who are dependent on You. We are weak in our ability to think and reason. We are weak in our ability to be effectual doers and not just hearers only. And we ask, Father, that your word would be preeminent this morning, that we would see and understand what it is that you're communicating, and that by it we would change our thinking and our lives, responding to the implications of what your truth is communicating. And I pray, Lord, that you would be glorified through all of it. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I appreciate Matt's message from last week, as I know that many of you did as well. He did a great job with that passage. And our text this morning is closely related to what he preached on last week. Those passages really go together. Hence the title this week, Life in View of the End, Part 2. And it goes... Together, and we we separated these out because I'm certain that many of you would not prefer a two hour sermon, though I'm sure Josh could accommodate that <laughs> but I think we would all like to hear two separate messages on this passage. so the context of verse uh, chapter uh, or verses excuse me verses uh, seven through eleven that we're going through today still falls within the general context of first peter and that's Dealing with suffering. How do we deal with that? The first half uh, that Matt did last week emphasizes triumph through suffering. This week, we're looking at the triumph through the second coming of Christ. But also notice in verses 1 through 6, it describes what we should not be doing while this week we're looking more at what we should be doing. There's kind of a contrast there. Also notice verses 1 through 6 describes uh, the, uh, the uh, even in the midst of suffering that, oh, excuse me, even in the midst of our suffering and trials, uh, we're to put off behavior and to put on another behavior. That was the point I was going to make. So, it's, it's rather like taking off a, a stinky, sweaty, dirty, raggedy set of clothes, throwing them aside, and putting on something else that more represents Christ. Some kind of glorious garment that represents who we are supposed to be in Christ. We're to put off one behavior, but we're to put on another. So, but in addition, all these verses one through eleven they demonstrate an eschatological emphasis. In other words, we're looking at the expectant return of Jesus Christ. Well, as first, give me a couple minutes. I'd like to look back at these first six verses and lay a little bit of groundwork for what we're talking about this morning. For the saints of God, those who die are free from sin. Correct. They experience the consummation of all the glories of being in the presence of God. We we all look forward to this one day of being absent from the body and present with the Lord. Do we not? We don't want to remain in this fallen flesh in a fallen world. We want to be parted from that. That's the heart of a believer. Christ may have suffered immensely during his first advent, but his suffering led to great glory and to triumph. So think about it, the enemy's greatest weapon against us is no longer a threat. We are also triumphant through Christ, through our suffering. Death leads to glory. What is more, if we're going to to be free from sin completely in the future, if your ultimate goal is to leave this world and be freed from sin entirely and be in the presence of God, then why would we live in sin now? Why would we do that? That doesn't make any sense. We we look at our society, and we see this crazy, fast decline in morality all around us. But this isn't a strange thing that's happening. It's not really shocking. What is strange is that society could possibly manifest any kind of godly moral standard at all. That's really what's strange. The fact that unbelievers can abide by any kind of morals is a gift from the gracious, restraining hand of God. In reality, their souls hate God, and they only love whatever gratifies their own flesh. That's the truth about unsaved humanity. So when God removes the restrictions or the restraints that he puts on humanity and freely gives mankind over to their flesh, the results are catastrophic. They're devastating. It's it's disastrous for, for humanity. And though many are shocked by current events, this is only mild, guys. It is only the beginnings of what mankind can quickly become. Turn with me for a moment to Romans chapter 1. This isn't our passage, and I understand that, but it gives a good sense of this particular point that I'm making. Turn to Romans chapter 1. We'll start in verse 18. 18 through 20, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For though they know about God, what they know about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived, even since the creation of the world, in the things that have been made, so that they are without excuse." So what this is essentially saying is mankind not only refuses to give God the glory that he rightly deserves, but in rebellion, they eagerly pursue everything that is wicked and vile and is ungodly. They do both of these things. So it says that God, in his wrath, gives them over to or gives them up to whatever their flesh craves. He just lets them have it. Have it and the consequences that go with it. It says three times in Romans chapter 1, verse 24, 26, and 28, which may indicate the severity and the finality of the situation. So, therefore, it says in verse 24 God gave them up to the lust of their hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring in their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who was blessed forever. Amen. All of this terminology right here, it's describing a sexual revolution. It is mankind uh, using relations between men and women in any way they decide they want to do it. No confines, no restrictions to what God has designed. I'll just do it however I want. Relations in every way without restraint. Verse 26, for this reason God gave them up to dishonoring passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women who were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty of their error. So now we progress to a gay revolution. Verse 28, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice these things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give heartily approval to those who practice them. This is mankind. This is what happens around us. We watch it happen, and they do it, not even considering that the Son of God is returning. There's no thought of it. And people who don't do these things are the strange ones. Now, why on earth... Would we allow our flesh to chase after any ungodly and corrupt way of life? Why would we do that? That makes no sense. This is how the condemned unbeliever acts. But you, you are a chosen race, Peter said, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. No, instead, we should be living the remainder of our life chasing after the holy will of God, rather than the ungodly lusts of the flesh. That should characterize who we are. To live in sin makes no sense. That's the contrast between these passages. But to the world, only sin makes sense, right? That's the only thing that makes sense. The only thing that doesn't make sense to them is you. That doesn't make any sense. But if you are truly born again, if you, by faith, love Christ and His righteousness, then sin is a burden that afflicts you. It is not a pleasure that fulfills. The Lord Jesus Christ suffered unto death and triumphed over sin and death. And so we too... Should willingly accept suffering without sinning, even if it means death, because we are also triumphant in Christ. That's the point. But as verse 5 said, they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. In this verse 7 for today, it says, the end of all things is at hand. The end. Is here. It's at hand. It's here. Well, wait a minute. What does that mean? After all, Peter wrote this 2,000 years ago, right? And it didn't happen, right? The end didn't come. How could we say that the end is at hand? Did Peter make a mistake? Not at all. It's important to understand that this word end, telos, is never used in the New Testament to describe a chronological end as if there's an order and everything came to an abrupt stop. That's not what it's pointing at. Tell us actually means a complete fulfillment and consummation, a full realization. You realize that from the time of Peter's letter until now, we have been living in the final phase of God's redemptive plans. We are in it now. Christ accomplished it all. It's finished, he said. All that is left is for him to return and bring final consummation. We're living in the end. There's there's nothing that prevents Jesus' immediate return. Nothing. Now he's addressing the reality that nothing prevents Christ from returning at any moment. That's the point that Peter is making. And one of the great things about this passage this morning is that we don't have to interpret a lot of this passage within its historical context and then try to bring it to present day in order to make the point. Everything that is in this passage is practical and applicable now and then. It's very easy to grasp. The return of Christ, the end of everything as we know it, is still at hand. We live in the final stage of God's redemptive plan, and the Lord Jesus Christ is going to consummate everything at any moment. That's the point. The only thing that holds God's hand back from Christ's return, even now, is his gracious, loving kindness that patiently brings more people to repentance and to faith. But there is a final moment that only he knows of when Christ will return. It will happen. This reality is echoed through the New Testament. Jesus told his disciples about his return on multiple occasions. In Matthew 24, 42 through 44, Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know what day your Lord is coming. But know this that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Mark thirteen twenty six 26-27, Jesus said again, Then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory, And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. And down in verses 32 and 33, he says, but concerning that day and that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the son, but only the father. Be on guard, keep awake. He's saying, don't lose focus. Stay the course, stay alert, stay awake. I'm coming. It's going to happen. In Acts chapter 1, as the angels even declared it. In Acts chapter 1, as Jesus is ascending before their eyes, the eyes of the disciples, it says, As they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking in the heavens? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way in uh you saw him go into heaven. And this is the message. This is why the the message of the apostles throughout the New Testament is consistent with this same message. It was part of their gospel. Paul said in Romans 8, For I consider that the suffering of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation awaits with eager longing for the revelation of the sons of God. Titus chapter 2, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of the great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. In other words, stay awake, stay alert, stay the course. He's coming. He says in Thessalonians 5.2, For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Peter echoes this in 2 Peter 3, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are all done on it will be exposed. James said in his epistle, chapter 5, You also be patient, establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. The writer of Hebrews said in chapter 9, Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sins, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. The message especially reverberates in the first epistle of Peter. You've seen it throughout his letter. Remember the introductory verses, how Peter addressed them as elect exiles. If you remember Josh's message on that. Then he says in verses 3 through 5, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for his salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Verse 13 of chapter 1. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Be sober-minded. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Chapter 2, 11 through 12, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh that wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. It's This seems long. This seems like a lot of verses. Paul, why this? There's a good point for this. And then there's the reference from last week's passage in verse 5, that all will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. The end of all things is at hand. We forget that. The fullness, the culmination of all that God has planned and all that he desires for an outcome, it's all at hand. It's all here. Verses 1 through 11 of chapter 4 are grounded in eschatology. Eschatology especially our passage today. It's pointing to this reality that Christ is coming. The reason for all these verses I just read, and there are many more, believe me, I could have read all morning. There are many more. Is that we are dull and easily distracted from this important reality. We must remember our great hope and expectation. Jesus Christ is returning. Things are not going to continue like they are right now. We're not going to see things continue like this. He's going to return. It's going to happen. This is our fixed hope, our certain expectation, and it should drastically affect the way that we think and act as his children, which is why I see this text, the rest of this, broken down in the light of these two things. In the light of Christ's return, we need to think rightly and we need to act rightly. So Peter first addresses the state of our minds, that we need to think rightly. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. It It sounds a little like those verses I just read, doesn't it? Stay awake, stay alert, be on guard. Self-controlled and sober-minded are are terms that both reflect on the way that we think with our hearts and minds. They're actually very related terms. Self-controlled comes from a term primarily meaning to have a sound mind. It, It reflects on a disciplined and restrained way of thinking. It's it's not just random, out of control. It's very focused. It could easily say, use sound judgment or use good sense. The second term, translated uh, sober-minded, is pretty much what it sounds like, believe it or not. It's actually a negative term. And it means to do the opposite of being drunk, is what the word means. But the point is that we're not to have any kind of fuzzy or clouded thinking. We're to think clearly about the times. It gives the idea of someone who is clear-headed and ready for obedient service to the God, to, to God at all times. Both of these terms seem to be the antithesis of what we saw the unbelievers doing in verse 3 right up above, isn't it? Living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. It's really the opposite of those activities. Peter is saying the return of Christ is at hand, so don't act like the unbeliever. Instead, use clear, disciplined thinking to, guard your, or to guide your heart and your actions. Let that reality be the, the thing that drives you. How is it that our hearts and minds could lack such a sober-minded spirit? That, it, that we could be so clouded from seeing the coming of the Son of Man that it's at hand. How, how can so many earthly distractions prevent us from maintaining a fixed hope and a fixed priority? And how is it that we could be so desensitized to the reality that there are unbelievers all around us who are facing the brunt of God's wrath, that we we don't have a concern for that? We're not thinking rightly. In reality, this, this way of living is not any better than the scoffers that Peter describes in the second in his second epistle chapter three, verse four, this is what this is the way we're behaving when we act like that when we don't see that as as a preeminent thing in our mind. Where is the promise of his coming For ever since the fathers fell asleep? All things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. he's not coming, everything's just going on. We just go on with our lives and we don't even think about it. but he continues in verse eight. Do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away like a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done in it will be exposed. The fact that his coming is certain and at hand should drive us to a self-controlled, sober-minded thinking. It should bring us to stability and hope as well. It should thrust us into holy living, and it should make us eager evangelists as well. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded, he says. Then he says in our passage, for the sake of your prayers. So Peter lacks a little specificity here. Um, It begs the question, how does a lack of disciplined, clear thinking affect our prayers? What is his point? But well, let me quickly address three possible answers. First, it may mean that we don't take prayer seriously. In other words, if we're not thinking clearly, if we lack discipline, sound judgment in light of Christ's return, then are we even serious about our prayer life? Does it even matter? The second possible way of looking at it is a lack of clear thinking in light of Christ's return Leads to weak or even wrong prayers. If we're not thinking our Messiah's return or taking our our Messiah's return seriously, maybe our prayer life is completely self focused in nature. A third possible explanation is that a lack of self control and sober minded thinking lead back to the sinful life listed back in verse 3 again. In this sense, it may reflect the same meaning as the previous chapter where husbands are warned that their harsh treatment of their wives can hinder their prayers. It's, uh, Josh said it's, it's sort of like God just slapping their prayers back down to earth. I have no interest in hearing it. So maybe an unrepentant, rebellious lifestyle lived by a believer God's not favorable to those requests. These last two interpretations bring to mind James' words in James chapter 4, where he says, You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and don't receive because you ask with wrong motives, that you may spend it on your pleasures. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes him an enemy of God. So whether Peter's intention was one of these reasons, or all three of these reasons, the point is is that our clouded and unfocused thinking causes detriment to our prayer life. And these are actually imperatives, these two phrases, um, to be sober-minded. We're, we're to think rightly. These are commands. He's telling us, do this in light of Christ's return. But thinking rightly should also lead to what? Right acting, right? If we're thinking rightly, we're going to act rightly. So what should our right activity look like if we're thinking rightly? Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Above all. You could say, of greater importance, more important than everything else, love one another earnestly. In view of the return of Christ, agape each other in a resolute, concentrated, humble, self-sacrificing way, and keep doing it. And we don't trip and fall into an opportunity to love, do we? We, we are supposed to be looking for the opportunity to love one another. It's focused. It's deliberate. It's stretching. That's what this word earnest actually means. Its base meaning is to stretch. We, we, we keep doing it no matter how hard it might be for us to do it. We keep loving each other. The word translated earnest gives this picture of an athlete who's running in a race and using all his strength and stretching and straining every muscle in order to reach his goal. That's how we're supposed to love each other. This is how we're to love. And Peter offers a reason, he says, because it covers a multitude of sins. What does that mean? Well, first let me tell you what it definitely doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that we totally ignore bad patterns of sin and bad behavior in each other's lives. That's what it doesn't mean. That wouldn't be a loving thing towards God. It wouldn't be a loving thing towards the church, and it wouldn't be a loving thing towards the individual who's living in sin. It definitely doesn't mean that. But even if that situation occurred, the reason you see steps like you see in Matthew 18 is... The focus is the concern for the other individual. It's it's a desire to see that person restored, to see them blessed by God and parted from their sin. It's not because of personal offense at who they are. We can't twist that. But let me read from Proverbs 10, 12, which is where Peter is quoting here. And it says, Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all transgressions. So I I truly believe, because in this case, it's love is a contrast of hate, right? And then stirring up strife would be a contrast of covering sin. So I truly believe Peter's point here is that we are to love in a way that is quick to forgive and slow to take offense. It is overlooking any offense in another because your heart is straining to love them with everything that you have. You patiently bear with one another, leaving room for change and growth. And and when they sin and they repent, you're quick to forgive them. Kind of rings with our song there. It said, preferring one another and forgiving as he forgives. Martin Luther put it this way. He wrote, as God God with his love covers my sins if I believe, so must I also cover the sins of my neighbor. It's literally to love my neighbor as myself. Not wanting to shame him or expose him, but wanting the very best for him. Peter says we're to keep on loving one another earnestly which remains consistent with his words in chapter 1, verse 22. He says, Since you have, in obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love for the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. And I believe Peter is giving the, the same practical instruction in verse 9 and 10. Um, he breaks down, what does this look like? What does our love look like? What does it look like? He first says, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Show hospitality without grumbling. Whether we are opening our home to a fellowship group, or maybe we're just having folks over for dinner, for a meal, or maybe we're opening our home because they're in need, and we open our home and we allow them in. This is purposeful hospitality. Again, we don't trip and fall into this. It is opening our lives and welcoming others into our lives and into our homes and doing so without grumbling, it says. In other words, you don't take offense and you don't ignore them or distance yourself from them because they're different. Kittle put it this way when describing the word hospitality. He said, strangeness produces mutual tension between natives and foreigners, but hospitality overcomes the tension and makes the alien a friend. It it means that we do not have an attitude and a behavior that displays some kind of dissatisfaction with them in any way. There is no complaining about who they are or the way they are. And no matter what their social, financial, ethnic place, you love them, you welcome them, and you stretch yourself to pursue their greatest benefit. If they are immature, you patiently love them without taking offense. If they are different from you in any way, it doesn't matter. You love them, and you open your home and your life, and you take them in. This could also include being hospitable as a church, not just us personally. Us as a body, collectively. That anybody who joins one of our events as a church, who's a stranger, we show them hospitality. A second way in which we love one another earnestly is in verse 10. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. I don't believe Peter's intention here is just to limit this purely to spiritual gifts. As though, even though they're included here, but I don't believe he's restricting it just to that. That's his main point. The gifts here are varied, it says. They are various provisions of God's grace to each of us. The gifts here, um, this would appear to include all spiritual strengths, all talents, all of our abilities, our resources. All the graces that God has lavished on us individually were to use them God has not given you all the gifts and talents and all the resources and abilities that you have so that you could be content and happy and focus it all on yourself. That's not God's intent. Even the blessing, guys, just adding this, even the blessing of being here every week and having Josh teach and instruct, it's not for you to just continue to build up your knowledge, it's to use that knowledge. Whether to evangelize or to bless and edify and encourage your brother. So, God hasn't given us our gifts just for ourselves. He's blessed us with all of this in order that you might serve Him and His church. There's a greater purpose than just you. What is more, boasting or using any of this for personal position or looking for some kind of recognition for all that you are and do is foolish since we are mere stewards, it says, of what God has given us. It says we're stewards. A steward had no personal significance or authority. People didn't say, oh, wow, look, a steward. Okay? He is simply given charge over resources by somebody who did have significance and authority and resources. So a steward was expected to use what was given to him in order to accomplish exactly what he was told to do with it. That's the job of a steward. God's intention is that we would use all that he has given us for the benefit of each other, for his glory. That's God's intention. Verse 11, it says, Whoever speaks as one who speaks the oracles of God, Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. This is describing how we use these gifts. You have both speaking gifts and serving gifts here. It is God who has given you all that you possess. You didn't create it. It doesn't belong to you. You're merely a steward who has been given much so that you might continually love and serve the benefit of those that are sitting around you today. This is what God wants you to do and what you have been entrusted with so that he is glorified through Christ when we love each other, it says. To merely use all that you have for yourself is not God's intent, and it makes an unfaithful steward. He's provided those who are gifted and can teach and instruct, and he's provided those who are gifted in serving to eagerly serve. doesn't matter what it is you're doing. We are all necessary. Josh over here, he needs you guys as much as you need him because he is equally a part of the body. We all need each other, and God has equipped us for that purpose. All abilities are important in the body and needed, and all abilities should be exercised in service to others that we may all grow. As Paul said in Ephesians 4, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, for whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. We are to continually stretch in our ability to love each other and to favor one another, opening our lives to one another, serving one another with all that we have, without taking offense, without complaining. And all this is to be done that God might be glorified through Christ when we love one another. Notice that nothing here is about us. It's all about him for the benefit of his body and for the glory of his name. We are family, his family. Very fitting, then, that Peter ends this passage with a doxology. It's fitting, it's right. Look at the the second half of verse 11. In order that in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him, and I believe it's a reference to Christ to Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Folks, the end of all things is at hand. Christ's return, the day of the Lord, it's at hand. There's nothing holding that back. It can happen at any moment. Let's think rightly so that our prayers are effective. Let's act rightly, continually loving and serving one another without complaint or offense so that Christ will receive the honor that is due his name. And I can't end without addressing those who have not yet acknowledged your guilt before God and completely trusted in Christ for forgiveness. I beg you, be reconciled with God now. Be reconciled with God. The end is at hand. And I want to conclude this morning by reading a clip from Charles Spurgeon. Because even at my best, I will never be able to put words together like he does. Christ's first coming was without external pomp or display of power. And yet in truth, there were few who could endure its test. Herod and all Jerusalem with him were stirred at the news of the wondrous birth. Those who supposed themselves to be waiting for him showed the fallacy of their professions by rejecting him when he did come. His life on earth was like a winnowing fan that sifted the great heap of religious profession and only a few could survive the process. But what will a second coming be? What sinner can endure to think of it? He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Isaiah 11.4 In Gethsemane, when he said to the soldiers, I am he, they fell backwards. What will happen to his enemies when he will reveal himself more fully as the I am? His death shook earth and darkened heaven. What will be the the dreadful splendor of that day when, as the living Savior, he will summon the living and the dead before him? Oh, that the terrors of the Lord would persuade men to forsake their sins and kiss the Son in case he be angry. Though a lamb, he is still the lion of the tribe of Judah, tearing the prey in pieces. And though he does not break the bruised reed, Yet he will break his enemies with a rod of iron and dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. None of his foes shall stand before the tempest of his wrath or hide themselves from the sweeping hail of his indignation. But his beloved blood-washed people look for his appearing with joy. In his living hope, they live without fear. To them he sits as a refiner even now. And when he has tested them, they shall come forth as gold. Let us examine ourselves this morning and make our calling and election sure so that the coming of the Lord may not be the cause of fearful expectations. Oh, for the grace to discard all hypocrisy and to be found of him sincere and without rebuke. On the day of his appearing, Father, I ask that you would forgive us for our hearts of unbelief, that you would forgive us for clouded thinking and distracted hearts that don't think rightly in light of the coming of the glory of the Son of God. Forgive us, Father, when we act so proudly as a people. And we do not earnestly seek the benefit of each other. That we are not open and welcoming. That we are not eager to see each other grow and flourish. That we are not eager to serve each other's needs, whether that is spiritual or physical. Forgive us, Father, when we take offense. We are impatient. We lack forgiveness. Lord, in light of the coming of the Son of God, I pray that you would build us as a body, a body of unity and love in faith, that you would help us to be a faithful people who are looking forward to his coming. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ, that he would be praised and honored in all of it. And we pray it in Christ's name. Amen.